Morning. Nice to see you. We're starting a new mini-series today. Um, we're going to be looking over the next four weeks, um, myself and some of my friends. Um, we're going to be looking at some significant voices, so some stories in the Bible, um, some women who kind of changed some stuff. Um, and if I guess to kind of set it in context, if you've been knocking around with us at Vine Life for any length of time, I'm hopeful you have clocked that um, like we really value stories. Right? We love the big story of God that he's writing from creation to eternity. And we love the fact that you and I, our individual stories, are part of this beautiful tapestry of the story, the big story of God. And so, you know, one of the things, we love to hear your stories. That's why we do Our Church, My Story. Like, we want to hear, like, what's God doing in you, with you, through you? Um, because that is part of how he's writing his story on earth. And so, there's so much we can learn from each other's stories. Um, so, we want to dive in over the next four weeks and look at... Um, and particularly women in the Bible, and think, actually, well, what can we learn from their story, and how does that impact us here and now? So this morning, I want to look at Deborah. Um, and so Deborah is a, a leader we find in the Old Testament, in the book of Judges, in chapter 4 and chapter 5. So there's two chapters. The first, chapter 4, is, is kind of the narrative. It's, pretty much, it's the story of what happened um, in her life. And then the second part, chapter 5, um, is the song of Deborah, where she sort of recounts in song what God has done. And so we're not for time, we're not going to have time to read both of those chapters in full, but if you want to jump into those this week, that will be good. Um, but that's who we're going to look at this morning. Just to kind of set the scene, so in terms of, okay, where does her story fit in God's big story? So historically, Deborah shows up in, in the time of the judges. So the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt for generations, and then God raises Moses up as a leader to kind of walk them out of Egypt and towards the promised land. It goes a little bit wrong. They end up stomping around the desert for 40 years. Moses dies, and Joshua is the next leader who's raised up, and he's the one who actually like, physically steps over the geographical border and actually leads the people of Israel into the promised land. And then the plan was that Israel was made up of these 12 tribes and that each of them had a certain chunk of land allotted to them. That was their inheritance. Um, and that what God said to them is you need to kind of, you need to drive out the people who were there. You need to tear down their altars and you need to set yourselves apart for me and set yourselves up in this new land. It's not quite what happened, um, and the Israelites weren't faithful to do all of that, and they kind of ended up settling in and around these other people, um, making agreements with them, marrying with them, not tearing down the altars, eventually ending up worshipping their gods, and things begin to unravel a little bit. Um, and so what happens is Joshua and his whole generation have died. And then we read in Judges 2, verses 1, and then verse 11 says that another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he'd done from Israel. It's like they'd forgotten already. In, within a generation, they'd forgotten some of the story. Um, and then verse 11 says that the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. So pretty soon after entering into the promised land, it begins to go a little bit wrong. Um, and that as a result, um, they are constantly battling with and fighting with and oppressed by these other tribes and other people around them. And so then we see God raise up judges. Now, you, we've got to think a little bit broader. We think judges like legal court. It, it, there was some of that involved, but it's a much broader position that it was a basically a governmental position. So the judges were the people who were leading Israel. And and then if you read on in chapter 2 of Judges, the people do all right. When there's a judge around, things go okay, and they turn back to God, and they kind of sort themselves out, and things are good for a bit. And then in Judges 2.19, it says, but whenever that judge would die, and we see it cycle through three different leaders, um, 
When the judge died, the people returned to their ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. So into this kind of cycle of a few generations of kind of we're following God and we're not following God and we're going to be obedient and then we're not again. Into this kind of cycle, we meet Deborah. So when she shows up, once again, people have been disobedient, they've worshipped other gods, and they are being oppressed by a king called Jabin and the commander of his army, who's called Caesarea. Um, and it says that actually those people, Jabin and Caesarea, had been oppressing Israel for 20 years. And then we meet Deborah. So that's a whirlwind tour. If you're happy, that's where, that's where Deborah was showing up. So let's jump into the Bible. I'm going to read Judges 4. This is going to start at verse 4. So Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. That sounds like a miserable job. It's like constantly having your kids coming. Mom, tell them. Anyway, that's what she was doing. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kedesh in Naphtali, and said to him, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go take with you 10,000 men, from Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Caesarea, the commander of Jabin's army, so those are the people who are pressing them right now, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly, I will go with you, said Deborah, but because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Caesarea into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. So if you read through the rest of chapter 4, we kind of get the, the nuts and bolts of actually how the battle went, and that we read that there is a, another complete victory for Israel. That the army is totally defeated, and Caesarea, who's the commander of the army, runs off. Um, and rather than Barak, who he's the commander of the Israelite army, rather than him kind of striking the final blow, Caesarea runs off, and actually it's a woman called Jael who... Um, who ultimately kills Caesarea. It's a pretty grisly story. Um, so Caesarea meets a miserable end, and then King Jabin is chased out and defeated. So total victory happens. And then we read in Judges 5 um, the song of Deborah. <clears throat> so we leave you with that. On, the, on that day, so on this day when the battle is won, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang this song. When the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. Hear this, you kings. Listen, you rulers. I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will praise the Lord, the God of Israel, in song. When you, Lord, went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water, the mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai, before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the, name, in the days of Jael, who's the woman who ultimately killed Caesarea, the highways were abandoned, Travelers took to winding paths. Villagers in Israel would not fight. They held back until I, Deborah, arose, until I arose a mother in Israel. God chose new leaders when war came to the city gates, but not a shield or a spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. My heart is with Israel's princes, with the willing volunteers among the people. Praise the Lord. And then the song goes on, and she carries on in song kind of like, singing essentially what happened and then there's one sentence at the end of chapter five after they've sung their song and it says and Israel had peace for 40 years so that's the story um, there's a lot of names in there but we're, we're clear on what's happened right that's the story 
And it's one of those bits which often, and it's often more in the Old Testament, isn't it? We kind of read it sometimes and think, what on earth has that got to do with me? Like, what, like, what can I learn from that story? Um, so I want to chuck out three ideas to you um, w- in ways that actually I honestly think it does apply to us. The first one is this, and really there are questions um, to ask ourselves. So the first one is this, is are we abiding or are we cycling? I'll explain what I mean. I don't mean cycling as in riding a bike. I mean going through cycles. Because in, in the macro, what was happening in Israel over generations, I think honestly can happen in, in the sort of micro in my life and yours over maybe months and years. And so they were going through this cycle of following the look God and being obedient and not worshipping him and then falling into idolatry, kind of have, living in peace and then facing another car crash. It was this constant in and out, up and down cycle of faith and faithlessness. And it was happening, if you read Judges 1, 2 and 3, over generations, so probably a couple of hundred years. How do you and I, like that can happen with us, right? in our individual lives. We can go through maybe over months or even years and we can, if we're not careful, find ourselves similarly kind of at some points full of faith and, and kind of eyes all on Jesus and, and then other times, you know, kind of we get distracted or discouraged or we get kind of tempted to shifting another way. What does it look like for you and I in our stories? Um, how can we avoid that in and out, up and down cycle of committing to God um, and then letting go again. What would it look like for you and I to wholeheartedly and consistently, both of those things, not just wholeheartedly every now and then, but wholeheartedly and consistently following Jesus? I think it would make a profound difference. What would it look like? So through one life stage or through one season to the next season to consistently, radically obey and follow him. You know, one of the things that I think will help us to kind of avoid the cycle and to end up abiding is actually just to keep worshipping. It's really interesting to know that actually, it, it, for Israel, it always started going wrong when it always began with worship. They actually fell into idolatry. It wasn't, it wasn't just that they started doing the wrong things. That did happen. But before that, they started worshipping the wrong one. That, that's the thing. Like it's, it's not just about radical obedience. Radical obedience comes out of consistent worship for you and I. Actually keeping Jesus absolutely front and center and, and not having any other altars in our lives. That was where the Israelites went wrong. They, they kept other altars kind of out and about and around and, and, it, and it just caused them to turn away. It kind of took their, it took their worship first and foremost and then it started affecting how they were walking and how they were living. So if we want to avoid these unhealthy cycles of in and out, one of the things that we need to do is just to consistently worship Jesus and, and abide in him. So that's the, de- that's the goal, right? So when Jesus is talking to his disciples at the Last Supper, um, he talks about himself as the vine and that we're the branches. And he's like, actually, if you abide in me, you'll bear fruit. And not just any fruit, fruit, fruit that lasts, like, and that was possible for Israel. It could have gone from one generation to another generation to another generation. If they had been able to abide, there would have been fruit that remained, not was kind of there for a season and then wasted away again. Right? And we can, we can get into the it's just me, we can get into the same situation, right? Where it's like fruitful for a little bit and then it all shrinks away again. It's like, actually, I'm not abiding, I'm not living, consistently worshiping Jesus, and then as a result, as an outflow, walking in his ways. We can avoid that cycle. And in order to do that, to kind of to walk 
as people who are abiding in Jesus, not in these kind of cycles, um, one of the things we have to figure out is, listen, we have got to take responsibility for that. So in Israel, it's interesting that you saw they did fine when they had a judge kind of leading them, pointing them in the right direction, cheering them on, probably challenging them when they got it wrong. When they had a leader almost kind of stewarding that life of faith for them, they did fine. As soon as the judge dies, it all unravels again. Right? That is real immaturity. Is actually, do you know what? I'm going to walk in Jesus' ways when I've got someone sort of, I don't know, speaking into my life or looking over my shoulder or challenging. Now listen, I believe absolutely in people speaking into my life. Like I need that, I want that, I want to invite that. But bottom line, me living a life, abiding in Jesus, walking in his ways, that is my responsibility. That's not anyone else's. So the people, it's not, it's not the people, my friends, who I'm asking to speak in. That's not their responsibility. It's mine. And so Israel, they'd kind of like, consistently they sort of deferred what should have been their personal responsibility to leaders and particular special people rather than, hey, this is on me to do. We need to be, again, super careful we don't do the same thing. Actually, that isn't, you know, the call for all of us, we say again and again and again, is for us to become mature, which is actually I take personal responsibility for consistently worshipping Jesus and wholeheartedly walking in his ways, regardless of who's around me, regardless of whether my circumstances right now are conducive to that or actually make that super challenging, I still get to make that choice and take responsibility for that. Just the first thing, are we cycling through this in and out life of faith or are we genuinely abiding in Jesus? Second thing, are we settling or are we arising? I want to read to you again from um, Deborah's song, verses six and eight, which are really important. And they're basically, Deborah's singing and she's describing the culture and the, and the situation she found herself in. So verse six says, in the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned, travelers took to winding paths. So essentially she's saying, the country had got entirely lawless and violent and unsafe. So it was not safe to walk on the normal roads because there were bandits and robbers. So people were like, I need to go out onto the winding roads. So culturally, it's like this is a dangerous, violent, unsafe place to be. Verse seven, villagers in Israel would not fight. They held back until I, Deborah, arose, until I arose a mother in Israel. God chose new leaders when war came to the city gates, but not a shield or a spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. So first six is describing kind of the cultural context in terms of you know, a violent, lawless, unsafe society. The next two verses are describing like almost like the internal world for Israel in that they would not fight. They didn't even have a shield or a spear. That was the condition of Israel at the time. No one would fight. You know, there was, they had been so accustomed to 20 years worth of oppression from Jabin and Caesarea that they had zero expectation of freedom and zero inclination that they would maybe do anything about seeing that happen. They were entirely, 100% resigned to their situation. And, and again, you know, we can read that and say, oh, they shouldn't do that. We'd never do that, would we? But actually, if you, if you read a little bit earlier in Judges 4, it specifically talks about Caesarea, who's the leader of the army, that he has 900 chariots fitted with iron, which could be like an irrelevant historical fact. But actually, I think that sets the tone as to why Israel found themselves so passive, so hopeless. So essentially, chariots with iron were 
of the day. They were the tanks, like the super weapons, the super vehicles of the day. And so, you know, in terms of military hardware, what was coming against Israel was absolutely overwhelming, was off the chart. You know, so it was like, it was, it was like the tanks of our day. And in comparison, they were like, what have we possibly got to kind of defend ourselves against this, let alone actually go after them? So the Israelites' perception was there is this overwhelming, impossible, all-powerful army with these incredible chariots coming against us. What on earth could we ever do? There's not even any point trying, so we're not even going to make shields and spears. There's just no point. And again, honestly, that sometimes isn't so far away from where we find ourselves, maybe individually, but sometimes corporately as the church, is that we can look at the challenges of our day, the stuff that's coming against us, and feel somewhat overwhelmed, somewhat ill-equipped, and, and without really anything to kind of resist with, let alone go after it. The temptation is that we can look at those things, the things that the enemy, like, like he is coming against humanity with, he's not just coming against the church, he's coming against humanity with things, and feel like, well, goodness, what on earth have I got to respond with? There's the 900 tanks of iron and I've got nothing. We can find ourselves similar situation, and you, gosh, just look at the news. Like, just think about the context. I'm trying to raise two teenagers in. It's, it is challenging, right? You know, the mental health crisis, the horrendous rates of knife crime with our teenagers, you know, stuff that's going on on social media, online pornography, child exploitation, modern-day slavery, homelessness, addiction. Like, you don't have to look very far at all to see chariots fitted with iron coming against us. It, metaphorically, does that make sense, right? The reality is, you, do you know what? Yeah, there is tough stuff coming against humanity culturally, and I know there are difficult things coming against some of you personally in your life. It's, it's challenging, right? But here's the thing. Deborah was in exactly the same culture, exactly the same context, so on one level would have had exactly the same excuse to sit back like every other person in Israel and just say, well, it's hopeless. Like, what could I possibly do? She had every reason to feel and act similarly, but she didn't. She stood up. That's what it says. Villagers in Israel would not fight. Um, they held back until I, Deborah, arose. That's the deal, right? Everybody else sat back, Deborah stood up. No villagers would fight, but when she stood up, what we actually read in chapter 4 is that Barak led an army of 10,000 people. So something happened from no villagers would fight to 10,000 men went out and defeated an army. And the thing that started that change was one woman stood up. Like, it's, it's a simple thing to understand. It's super hard to do, but actually, this is what we've got to understand. Yes, there's stuff that we're facing. We're not just to put our fingers in our ears and la, 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 Jesus loves me, everything's fine. It's like, actually, no, there's tough stuff happening, but... We don't get to sit back, we get to stand up. That's the call, and that's what Deborah did. That's what, that's what leading looks like. You know, we talk about leading a lot around here, and, and I want to be super clear, but when we talk about, listen, you are all called to lead, we mean you're all called to influence, right? We're not all called to be military political leaders, like Deborah was. Some of you might be, but most of us aren't, and that's fine. But leadership looks like standing up and saying, hey, we're going to go this way in such a way that people follow. And whether the people follow are your two kids or the five people you lead on your work team, whether it's two of the people you live with, like the scale and the sphere where you influence and your story gets to tell something different, 
Where that is, how many people are influenced, is honestly irrelevant. That doesn't matter. The challenge is, am I standing up? That's what leading looks like, is actually that I stand. And, and Deborah did that. She arose as a mother. And she listened, she heard what God was saying, and she spoke it out. But not just that, she did something about it. And then everything changed. And it's really important to notice, listen, nothing changed before Deborah stood up. It wasn't that suddenly, I don't know, you know, Cesare lost 450 of his chariots. And they're like, okay, maybe the odds are a little bit more in our favor. It wasn't that suddenly Israel had a few chariots of their own. Like the situation had not changed. Nothing changed until Deborah stood up and then everything changed, right? What the world does, what we've got to get away from is this passive approach that actually, you know, the kingdom coming, like it looks like situations are going to start changing. Things are going to get a little bit better. The world doesn't need that. What the world needs is you and I to stand up and then things change. But this, this is what, what we were seeing in Israel, Nothing changed until someone heard the voice of God, believed that it was truth, and stood up and said, right, let's do something about it. That's, that's the gig. That's what each one of us are called into. And I love this other beautiful mark of leadership. And it's not just a, lot, a mark of leadership. I think it's a mark of friendship. Is actually, Deborah didn't kind of just make this decree from under her palm and say, kind of, on your way. Actually, she went with Barak. Um, it wasn't just you do it. It wasn't just kind of dictating things from the sideline. It was absolutely on the, you know, on the field of play. I'm with you. I'm in you. Let's do this. It wasn't just you do this. It was, hey, let's us do this. Because we can't be a people who've got all the right things to say, but we're not willing to jump in and get our hands dirty, right? We have to have the courage to go and to do and to step out, um, to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. Jesus, please keep us from being people who've got all the right things to say, but actually don't do anything about it. It's not going to get the job done. And so Deborah shifted culture, right? It says that for 40 years, because of her standing up and saying, this is what God's saying, 40 years Israel had rest. So your leadership, the influence, the story that's written on your life, it changes things. And you, we not, you know, it is, it's like that. You drop a stone in the pool. You have no idea how far the ripples of your life might go how much difference it might make in those places and spaces where you choose to stand up um, and, and lead people, influence people, change people. Okay, third thing I want to say, I love about this story um, is that actually men and women are supposed to lead together. We go together. It's a, it's a super obvious point, right? We're going to look at some particular stories of women in the Bible. Um, but it, you can't actually over-exaggerate quite how bonkers crazy it was that Deborah was leading in that culture at that time. Because Israel, in that period of time, as in probably everywhere over the world at that period of time, was entirely a patriarchal system, right? Men led, men had the power, men, like, it was men. So, you know, to say Deborah was leading in Israel at this time is, is bonkers. It's like that was absolutely not the normal. But I think it's one of these, it's the only story we read like it in the Old Testament. But I think it's because that is a prophetic picture of actually what God designs for humanity is that men and women would lead together. So she's this remarkable woman leading in a, where culturally she shouldn't have been. And so this is the thing for us, men, women, young, old, wherever we find ourselves, actually, there are some situations where culturally we shouldn't have the positions that we have, but actually if God's placed you there and you stand up, then you have influence. Um, so she's a remarkable leader. 
Barak is a remarkable man because he's grown up in this patriarchal context. He's a military man who is willing and wanting to be led by a woman. Like, that is amazing. That humility to say, yeah, I'll go, but I need you to come with me. Um, and as a result, he doesn't get to strike the final blow. But actually, interestingly, if you read in Hebrews 11, you know where there's the, the kind of like the hall of the heroes of the faith. Barak is included in, you know, his, his faith is included in there. But it was a partnership. Barak and Deborah went out together. I think that is a prophetic picture of what God always designs for his people. We're supposed to do it together. 1 Peter 3, 7 um, I mean, Peter is talking to husbands, he's charging them to honor your wives. It's one of those tricky verses, as the weaker vessel. Listen, it doesn't mean less value, it just means for the most part, men are physically stronger, which I'm fine with. It means Bill gets to carry the suitcases. I'm fine with that. He's physically stronger than me, but it doesn't mean he's more important. I'm not going to talk about that. That's another day, another day. But what Peter says is, husbands, honor your wives as being heirs together in the grace of life. Listen, the church has got this hideously wrong for thousands of years. We are called to be heirs together, men and women. So women are called to lead, to shape, to steward, to influence, full stop. But it's not in the place of men. And I think culturally we need to be aware. We've we've moved out of a patriarchal system in many ways in, in the West, right? We need to be super careful we don't shift into it. Actually, women lead in place of men, in opposition to men, or in the context where it's actually as a concession to men. That is a horrible counterfeit for actually what God calls us to, is that we're to lead together as heirs together in the grace of life. That's what we're called to be. That's what fullness and maturity looks like, men and women leading together. So Deborah and Barak went out to battle together. And I love chapter five, right? It's called the Song of Deborah. But if you read verse one, it says, Deborah and Barak sang this song together. That's beautiful. We need to learn. And listen, we should be leading in culture what it looked like for men and women to sing together and to go together. That's what we're called to do. So, coming into land, what about us? Um, When I was kind of doing a bit of reading around this, it's really interesting. Deborah's name in Hebrew, her name actually means the bee. Now, if you've been around Manchester any length of time, you'll know that is significant. So the symbol for Manchester, for our city, is a bee. So I'm like, I'm like, this is something that is important for all of God's people, but I'm like, this is, I think, a specifically important word for us in this city right now. What would it look like for us as a church in Manchester to really take seriously that charge and that challenge to arise, to stand up as moms and dads in the places and spaces that God's called us, when everybody else around us maybe sat down, shrank back, gave up? Because that was what Deborah was surrounded by. Passive people not willing to fight, resigned to the inevitability of the culture they were in and the hopelessness of their situation. Deborah arose, and as a result, an entire nation moved into four decades of rest. It's profound. What could it mean for your life, for your children's life, for your home, for your staff room where you work, for, for your city, for this city, for even for the UK? What would it look like if we genuinely stood up and stay stood up, not I'm gonna arise and then this is a bit tricky, I'm gonna sit back down again, I'm gonna stand up and then I'm gonna shrink back again. What would it look like for actually you and I to stand up and stay stood? Not in these kind of in and out cycles of faith and faithlessness, worship and idolatry, obedience and rebellion, which is where Israel found themselves. 
I don't think Israel's story in any way had to be like that. I think they could have built from generation to generation, glory to glory, if they'd have just stuck in with worshipping God and walking in his ways. And that's possible for you and I. But in order to do that, in order to, to stand and stay stood consistently, not up and down, um, I think we need to see. I think we need to see in order to stand. So let's look in Ephesians 1. Verse 18 to 19, this is one of the other times where Paul is praying for the early church. He's praying for the church in in Ephesus. And he says this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. We need to see three things in order to arise and stay risen We need to see three things. We need to know that the hope that we're called to, even when situations look hopeless, we are called to hope. We need to know the the riches of our glorious inheritance. And we need to know his incomparably great power. And it's really important we need to read that verse right. His incomparably great power for us. It's not like an abstract force out there. His power that raised Jesus from the dead is for us. Not that we get to dictate and, and be oppressive, but actually so we get to go low, and we get to serve, and we get to love people. But there is an incomparable amount of power that is for us. But if we don't see those things, right, we, we're not, it's going to be super hard to stand up and stay stood if all we see is the opposition and what's coming against us, right? If we don't see the hope that we have, the inheritance we have, and the power that's available to us, to steward that inheritance, it's super hard to stand up and stay stood. But listen, here's the thing. I'm going to say this, I mean kindly, but I don't want this to sound harsh. I don't think you and I, as God's kids, I don't think we have get permission to live in defeatism or hopelessness. And I know there's tough stuff that's happening, but I just don't think that's okay for us. I don't think you and I have permission to live like that. We don't, we don't have permission for us to live like Israel without sword and spear, just resigned to, well, this is, this is where we live, this is our context, what can ever change? But if, if all we see is the 900 chariots coming against us and we don't see our hope, our inheritance, our, the power for us, it's super easy. And it's actually far more likely that we'll be like those Israel villagers, you know, fighting not even on the agenda. Actually, we're just resigned. We'll sit back, we'll shrink back, we'll keep quiet. That's not it. We have to see who we are and who the God is that we serve, and then everything changes. Isaiah 60, 1 to 3, this is the last verse I want to read you. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. This is a really important one of the sort of messianic promises. And this is you and I now, right? This is an absolute explicit charge and challenge to you and I that we would arise and shine for our light has come. Jesus has come. He did die. He was raised. He is seated on high. So we now get to arise and shine because his light has come. But I love this verse because it doesn't pretend there's not stuff going on. Verse 2, see, darkness covers the earth. Thick darkness is over the people. It is acknowledging there is tough stuff. There is dark stuff going on. It's not pretending any of that isn't there. But the Lord rises upon you 
If all you and I focus on is deep darkness is covering the people and we forget, but he rises upon us, we're just going to stay sat back. So somehow we have to grapple with that but. Yes, there's deep darkness over the people, but the Lord rises on me. And what am I going to do about that? And what are you going to do about that? Because we're called to arise and shine. So, you know, he's not pretending that there's not tough stuff coming against humanity in our culture. There 100% is. We don't get to live hopeless, we don't get to live helpless, and we're not to live faithless. We have to arise and shine. But we have to have our eyes open, yes, to the challenge, but also to our hope, our inheritance, and the power that's available to us. We have to keep our eyes fixed on there. So I want to encourage you to ask yourself those questions. Actually, am I cycling? And sometimes it's not even just like, I do good for six months and then I'm off for six weeks. Sometimes almost this kind of faith and faithlessness and worship and idolatry, obedience and rebellion, sometimes those things coexist, right? It's like, you know, yes, I'm trying to follow Jesus, except with this particular area of my life, I'm still going to kind of do my own thing. I'm going to slightly keep myself on the throne over here. Jesus, you can have all the rest of it, right? Or there's some things that we have faith for, but other things we've resigned ourselves to, that's just never going to change. We've settled for certain things. Listen, there's a better way for us to live. So maybe there are things that you're like, do you know what? I, I have slightly resigned myself and I'm slightly living hopeless in that situation. Maybe actually you're recognizing that it's kind of in and out and up and down rather than really abiding in Jesus. And until Deborah stood up, that's where Israel find themselves. But actually it requires us as God's people to say, well, this is what God says and I believe him. So I'm going to stand up and let's do something about this. And so my, the question is, is something that you need, we need to take away and kind of work with. Actually, what does a rising and shining look like for you? In the situations where God's placed you, maybe the specific things are coming against you, or even just the places in, in our city where God's put you. What does that look like for you to arise and shine? And I want to encourage you, listen, we can respond to things like this in a moment, and I want us to pray for one another, definitely. Um, but we have to respond to those in terms of moving in our lives. And so I would encourage you, like, who are the people you're doing life with? Who are the people who actually you're, you're being honest and open with and you're inviting into your life to speak into your life? Kick those things around together. Actually say, do you know what? I feel like God's asking me to stand up in this way, in this situation. I feel like I recognize, do you know what? I am super hopeless about this. Would you pray for me? I need, I need to have my eyes opened again to actually my hope and my calling, the inheritance I have, because I've lost sight of it somehow, right? We need, we need each other to help in, in moving forward. Does that make sense? So I, I dare you to invite each other into those places and spaces, because, listen, it is not enough for us to be a people who hear some interesting concepts on a Sunday morning or at City Group or on a podcast, and actually it makes no discernible difference to our lives and the lives of people around us. Right? There's absolutely no point in that, and we should just pack up and go home if that's where we find ourselves. Right? It's got to make a difference. We've got to arise and shine, and, it, and people will be drawn to it. That's the prophetic promise in Isaiah. People will be drawn to Jesus in you and his presence on you. They'll be drawn to it. And the question is, what does it look like? And I can't answer that question for you. I can, I can get before God and I can kick around with Phil and other people and say, actually, God, where are you asking me to stand up and stay stood? Where am I sitting down where I need actually a kick up the backside? What does that look like? And what does that look like for you? But I absolutely, listen, we are not supposed to stand up with our own charisma and intellect and wit. Like if that was the case, we would, I would get very little done, right? We get to stand up with Christ in us, the hope of glory, right? It's not our intellect, wit, hard work, or anything else. 
It's actually it's him in us. That's the deal. That's what we need. And so I want to um, pray if, if you would like us to pray. I want to say if actually you're like, do you know what? Yeah, I want to I wanna be a Deborah. I want to actually stand up. I want to arise. I don't necessarily know all of what that looks like right now, but I know that response is, yeah, God, I want to stand for you in the places. Then I want to encourage you literally to stand where you are right now. We'd just love to pray with one another. Um, So what I, that's most people, which is awesome. So maybe rather than just having a prayer team, I want maybe just place a hand on the person next to you, kind of scoot together. Um, but I'm going to pray. But really we want to pray this is, actually, do you know it's more of the Holy Spirit? Because Paul says the Holy Spirit is a deposit. He's like the down payment of our inheritance. We don't get this job done without the Holy Spirit. It's entirely dependent on him. So I'm going to pray. And then I'll just encourage you just to bless one another and just ask for more of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. Jesus, thank you that you have made a way for us to know you, be known by you. Thank you for calling us into your amazing story. And I thank you for every life and every story in this room. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and would you open our spiritual eyes again to see the hope of our calling, the unbelievable inheritance we have in you and the power that is available to us. God, would you open our eyes to that and where we've become feeling hopeless and helpless and discouraged and resigned. Jesus, open our eyes again to who you are and who we are in you. And Jesus, we say that we want to be a people who will arise and shine for you, but we need you. So I pray, Holy Spirit, would you come and fill each one of us once again? Maybe just take a moment to pray for the people around you and just ask more Holy Spirit. Open eyes, full hearts, so God, I want to thank you for who you are. Thank you who we are in you. Thank you for what you're doing on the earth in this time. And God, we just say that we're, we're yours. Ask that you would fill us, you'd send us, you'd equip us. Jesus, we want to say that we want to worship you wholeheartedly. And we want to walk in your ways consistently. And ask that you'd help each one of us to do that. In your beautiful name we pray, Jesus. Amen.